I mean, this is probably a deep therapy thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let it out. <laughs> people find public speaking worse than death, so they say, and my job is helping people speak in public. Giving the TEDx talk, it is a hugely popular talk. If you told me that I would go into it and all those people would watch it, I think I would probably have run away. It's funny, for the first book, I interviewed A-list actors. It was Kate Winslet, it was Helen Mirren, it was Sarah Jessica Parker, all of those people. Collectively, they were blindingly fairy dust. But as individuals, they were just humans. Mm. When someone criticizes you, extract what you need from the criticism, then let the rest of it go. The harder I tried to be good, the worse it got. I think theatre probably taught me that. Those moments are the moments that really elevate us in life. Mm -hmm. and, and if we don't embrace them, then life is really small. My guest today is Caroline Goider, who makes a welcome return to the podcast. Caroline is an experienced speaker and speaker coach whose TEDx talk, The Surprising Secret to Speaking with Confidence, has nearly 10 million views on YouTube. Caroline was born in Durham, studied English literature at Oxford University before completing a master's in voice studies at the Royal Central School of Speech and Drama. When we last spoke on the podcast, it was as her book, Find Your Voice, hit bookshelves. And while we did speak about how to calm nerves when speaking in public, I discovered that within Caroline's teachings, there was far more than simply how to deliver a riveting talk. Speaking with confidence is about tuning into your thoughts in a way that unjumbles a messy mind, calming down your physical reactions and nerves so you have poise and presence when delivering what you have to say, and breathing. Oh, how important the breathing is. I came away from that conversation feeling that what one really learns when one hones the skill of finding one's voice is better understanding who they are and finding an economy of language that's lean and efficient, not flabby and ineffective. It's why I'm delighted to welcome Caroline back to the podcast to share her life life lessons. Hello. I am so honoured to be here. Oh my God. I'm so glad that you're back. It's amazing. Because I was saying to you before we started recording, we sat down to talk about find your voice. And I was like, yep, she's going to like the five things you need to do before you get up and give a speech. And as you were talking to me, I just thought it's so much more. It's so much more. And then I think what we ended up talking about was how grounded and centered you are and how that came as a byproduct of working on your voice. And how I wasn't like that for so long in my life, right? How that was a lesson I really had to learn and still have to keep learning. So I teach what I need so much. You teach what you need. That's interesting. Do you ever think about what life would have been like if you hadn't done the voice work? Yeah. It's so I would be like, I think I'd be like something in Ab Fab without the style <laughs> choices. <laughs> Just that kind of slightly scatty in your head. I'm so, so glad. I, and people I, I know now as friends, I think I wouldn't have been friends with. So it, yeah, life changing this stuff. Did you feel when you were learning the skill that you were, there was something else going on that you were finding out who you were? Because that's definitely what I came away from our conversation with. It's, it was, I mean, it, a lot of, me learning this stuff was so traumatic, <laughs> but it doesn't need to be like that, I have to say, because I was training as an actor, a lot of it was lessons that were quite hard to find. And I think the reason I do what I do is because I know the power of those lessons. And I know that like, you don't have to knock people down 
to learn those lessons. So my thing is all about how do you build people up mm. without knocking them down and still take away those lessons? Because I think life is too short to be knocked down first, mm. personally. Are you saying that because maybe you were knocked down and had to pick yourself back up again? That was the old drama school. That was how drama schools were. It's like art schools, I think. I've never done art school, but I'm told that if you wanted to be an artist back in the day, you would be knocked down and then rebuilt. It was just the way they did things. Is that just like an archaic way of teaching, like break them down, build them back up again, but with new, with a new operating system that's in line with the teaching? It's a bit me too, isn't it? It's a bit, it's a bit kind of, it's a bit control. It's a bit, I think it's old thinking. It's gone. I think it's gone. Hopefully. Hopefully. Yeah. Well, with people like you out there teaching in a completely different way. You hope so. I also don't think the youngsters, I sound 107, <laughs> so I say that, but I think people coming through are less accepting of that kind of bullying behaviour, whereas we were so accepting of it. Do you think, it's interesting you say that, because I think sometimes I look around at people who are much younger and they they seem, as people, much more solid in terms of who they are and what they stand for. And obviously my perspective is as someone who's got 20 odd years on them, but I think try to think about what I was like back then and I don't know what I was projecting outwardly because that was someone else's perception but I know that inside I was a soft bit of clay that was desperate for someone to shape me or to be shaped or to find my shape so I that I could live my life. I think that's so true and, I, and I, if I think about what life was like to get a job I mean like do you remember all the letters? I mean, maybe, you know, you had to, those people in those important jobs were so powerful that you couldn't, you couldn't direct message them. You had to write posh letters and then go in for an interview for an internship. And they had so much power. And I love that that power has been democratized. So mm. I really hope that people coming through do kind of have more sense of who they are because they should, right? God, it was that thing, wasn't it? I, when I think about, when people say things about CVs, instantly I just <laughs> think of, pages of stamps not books of stamps because when I'm back in my day you'd go and like get a full page out of the post office and yeah just um those posh envelopes or the poshest that you could afford and then handwriting the name crazy world crazy crazy world okay um let's let's start with risk which is where we always start <laughs> <laughs> what would you how would you describe your relationship with risk God, that's interesting. So my job is about helping people to manage risk as speakers, right? Because people find public speaking worse than death, so they say, and my job is helping people to speak in public, right? So I spend a lot of time thinking about risk. I've taken some risks in my life. First thing I would say is I would never do a bungee jump. So there is certain <laughs> risk around heights and small spaces. I watched traitors and I was like, you will not bury me in a coffin. <laughs> All of that stuff is not my thing. But spoken risk, audience risk, putting yourself out there, that I'm quite curious about and I'm quite interested in. So I think I have an enjoyment of certain kinds of risk. And I love that moment where you step in front of an audience and there's a sense of anything could happen now. That that I love. Mm -hmm. And that's really the moment that I kind of get up for, whether it's helping others or whether it's me as a speaker. And I'm an introvert. And yet trained as an actress and does what you do, one might think supremely confident, doesn't even have to try to do these things, is desperate to get on the stage, loves the sound of her own voice. <laughs> But no, 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 no. 
I always get really angry before I'm about to speak. Like if I'm nervous about it, I no, like, no, not too dramatic. But like the days before, I'm a bit like, oh, why did I agree to that? And oh God, and what am I going to say? And they're not going to like it. And I just catch that. That's that's my fight or flight brain saying this is a risk. Don't do it. But I know to override that. Interesting, because every before I do any podcast, there's a very weird uh, emotional thing that happens. And it's almost like I prepare for worst case scenario, but it means that I tend to come into the situation having to sort of fake, not fake, but that's in the back of my mind and I'm having to push past it and no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. But my brain has told me a different story for the preceding 24 hours, maybe. Yeah, I really relate to that. I, I And I think that's, it's like fight or flight is a really good survival mechanism as long as it's, as they would say in corporate life, your due diligence. You know, it's like, it's saying, worry about this, think about that, check that. Have you asked those questions? Have you run it through? You know, all of that stuff is really, really good advice from your panic brain. Mm -hmm. But then you just have to go now back in your box and let the thing be fun. But I do think all of us need to kind of just enjoy that moment of checking and being aware of what could go wrong. Because actually mm -hmm. that's what makes you good. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's that risk really is where you've weighed up that there might be something to lose and whether you are prepared to lose it. And that's what that's the good stuff in life, isn't it? If there's no risk, honestly, life, life is too short not to take risks. Because mm. risks are the thing, the moment where you step up in front of that big audience or the podcast that you do where you're a bit nervous of the, you know, that person you're interviewing. I'm definitely not that person, but you have done those interviews. You know, it's like those moments are the moments that really elevate us in life. Mm. And, and if we don't embrace them, then life is really small. You mentioned then about your job is um, uh, helping people with speaking you don't like public speaking do you, you don't like that phrase am i correct yeah in I, that? I would totally take out public and yeah. put it in the bin or you know <laughs> explode it or something but you said managing risk around speaking in public and so what, <laughs> what is the risk like what's the definition of risk in that scenario just that you bomb and yeah they the, throw the tomatoes eyes. at you you know from the moment we're at school and we're in front of all those 13 year olds you know? <laughs> <laughs> so many people have that trauma that's that is the trauma for most people who hate public speaking it's that moment where everybody looks at you and they might laugh mm. or they might start checking their phones or they might walk out and i think all of us rightly worry about that moment mm. and our primitive brain thinks they're going to kill you of course that's not going to happen but being laughed at if you're not ready for that, would also be mm. quite horrible. Quite horrible. <laughs> so it will be quite um, a shock, I think, for people to learn that your biggest risk, the one that you're prepared to talk about, although there is a supplementary risk, <laughs> is giving the talk, giving the TEDx talk. So the name of the talk is uh, was Speaking with Confidence. It has, I mean, last time I checked YouTube, it was under 10 million, but I'm perfectly prepared to, I think it was 9.99 million. So we can do a check. It will definitely be over 10 million by the time this comes out. It is a hugely popular talk. It was pitch perfect, delivered so beautifully. And given that you are a voice coach, vocal, you teach people to do this, <laughs> the idea that there was any friction in the decision-making to do it is I definitely to me was like you what and I'm sure to <laughs> listeners they'd be like huh isn't that what she does but explain to me why it felt like such a big risk 
It happened by magic because I was coaching Brixton TEDx and they just said, do you want to do a talk next year? And I said, yes, okay, this is what I want to talk about. So it was fairly frictionless to get to the point where they said, yeah, let's do it. And at that point, I hired a coach because any coach knows you need a coach. Mm. And she Any was, good coach knows you need a coach. Any good coach. <laughs> I mean, any sensible coach knows you need a coach. And she said, this is a massive risk. And that, at that point, I was like, oh, F. Yes, <laughs> it is. Because I hadn't really thought about the audience who would watch it on YouTube. I'd only really thought about the lovely 400 people who were in the room at Brixton TEDx who were super nice. But she said, if this goes well, lots of people will watch it. And if it goes badly, it's on YouTube for the rest of your life. <laughs> and at that point, I just, you know, I talk about approaching risk. I doubled down on the work and I... I really, it was quite hard to get it right, but we really worked on getting the content right. I found a super, super cool prop, which I felt excited about, my half-naked man. Chest of drawers. Chest of drawers. And then I, I had got a stand-up comedy coach helped me really sharpen up the delivery of certain lines. And he got me to the delivery of the line ending at the end of the talk. And at that point, and I think this is the thing for me about risk, I felt someone on the day said, you're the readiest person in this room. Mm. The risk made me get ready. And I think theatre probably taught me that, that the more scared you are, the more you make sure that you've kind of ticked all the boxes. And then after that, it's just luck, isn't it? It's just, it's just you have to trust that you've got enough safety nets in place that if you fall, you'll, you'll be okay. I think what I really appreciated about when you described the fact that, you know, this could be, the stakes were so high because this is what you do for a living. And if this doesn't go well, then it, it, the ramifications of that, the implications of it not change going well career, are massive. Change career. <laughs> so what was really interesting to me is you said, so I worked really hard. And that's the part of the answer to this that I absolutely love because you're absolutely right. You can stay in that adrenaline space going, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what's going to happen. Or you can double down and do so much work. But where does where does that kind of stop? Because I know in my um, acting days at school, you you could rehearse too much. Oh, yeah. So talk to me about the working hard process mm. and how it how you got to the point that when you actually did deliver it, it was the perfect one. And this is where I think Chris, Chris Head, who was the stand-up comedy director, who is excellent, who he really helped me because stand-up comics, I mean, I'm never going to be one, right? But they, Jesus, they know how to handle a moment. And he kept saying, you just need choices. So with a TEDx, you do pretty much learn the lines. You know, it is a script. Mm. But he kept saying, okay, if nobody laughs at this point, you've got two or three things you can say. Just have those up your sleeve. And depending on what the audience do, you could do this or you could do that. And so I think what he gave me was that kind of stand-up comics toolkit of it's pretty rehearsed and the script is pretty tight and there are moments where you can dance a bit. And I think that ability to be scripted and then dance was the thing that really made a difference. Mm. And of course, there was an, a fabulous, before I went on, jazz saxophonist. And that it, it is just playing jazz, right? That's exactly what I was having to do. And that and I, and I think any jazz musician, my dad is one, will say, yeah, rehearse it and then just be there. 
I mean, it's quite hard. It was, it was lucky. I also went first thing in the morning. I asked to go first. That's good. That's <laughs> good. Because the build-up could be the sort of the nerves. You could have hit that stage in a completely different frame of physical frame of mind. Yeah, and like if you've had too much coffee or mm. too much sugar, I knew if I was sitting all morning that that would mess me up. So I just, I just said to Stephanie, the organizer, and she went with it, you know, can I go first? And I think actually that was the game changer. I've got a friend called Michael Parker who's a pitch coach. He was at Saatchi's for a long time and he always said we chose our best time of day. We always asked them if we could have morning energy. And I think I probably learned off him. See, okay, so that's really interesting. So you've got the timing, you've got the, right, let's find the room where you can dance. You've got the other work you did. Was it work on your voice, on your tone? Like what other component parts did you get help with in order to be able to deliver that and feel confident when you hit that stage? I think the process with Chris, I mean, so Denise Graveline was, I, it was two coaches really. Denise Graveline worked with me on really finding me in it. And that was powerful. And then I think Chris was the real secret source because he was about, like with stand-ups, you've got to sell it, haven't you? And I think, as I think about it, and this is a new thought, with the good TED Talks, people are really selling the idea. Mm. You've got to really own it. And, and I think that's the secret that he gave me. And it comes out of, I discovered with him, that kind of cleverness of, knowing what the lines are, knowing what the angle is, knowing what the surprise is, because stand-up comedy is all about misdirection. And I think he gave me some of that magic. I mean, it's not a laugh, you know, it's not a laugh a minute. So I think you've got every 10 seconds in stand-up, haven't you? It's not that, but it, it does have that sharpness. So I highly recommend stand-up comedy to everybody. It's funnily, funnily enough, we had um, Dr. Jim Down on the podcast a little while ago, and he was like, like any good middle-aged man, I've done a stand-up comedy um, workshop class situation. And I did think, I'd really like to try that, but I'm too scared. Do it. Do it. <laughs> um, that to me, with the work that went into it, the reaction it got, the fact that it's still continuing to get so many views, I wonder if it was life-changing in that the work that you put in to doing that talk you couldn't unknow it and your life fundamentally moving forward. It affected how you made decisions, the gambles that you were willing to take, the projects you were willing to take on, the way you worked with people. Was it that significant? It looked like I'm just doing a TEDx talk, but actually it was like, this has now changed my life. It, I mean, it, it, I think when I look back on the course of my life, however long it is, I will look back on that moment as one of the big ones. And I think partly, as you say, it's about self-belief, and we live in an age where numbers, I mean, as you know, deeply, the numbers of viewers <laughs> are a thing. And so if you told me that I would go into it and all those people would watch it, I think I would probably have run away. But because they did and because it's been useful, it's given me a belief that that problem of having to stand in front of an audience and speak and feel confident is really resonant for people, mm. tick, and that... I was able to manage that moment, which was scary and high risk. And so I have some expertise on how to do it. I mean, it's limited, right? But it's there. And, and those two things are really powerful. And I mean, books came out of it as well. So there was, I think I'd written Gravitas before I did it, but certainly Find Your Voice came out of that talk. You know what you didn't say, and we were talking about numbers there, and it's the obvious next thing, is what you haven't said is, and the fact that 10 million people have watched it validates me. 
<laughs> that's not part of your, <laughs> doesn't seem to have impacted your self-esteem in that way of, oh, I must be good at what I do. That seems to be something that you're pretty fine with already. I think my, my, so, I mean, this is probably a deep therapy thing. <laughs> <laughs> Let it out. <laughs> because I struggled so much with what I was being taught at drama school. I have this, and you know, stuff that happened earlier on in my life, perhaps I, I need, I found it hard to find my voice. And so I've got such a big belief in helping other people do it. It makes me feel, you know, it gives me a good feeling. The fact that 10 million people are interested in learning about that, that's really powerful. Mm. And that makes me feel really happy. I'm an introvert. So the thought of being looked at by 10 million people is <laughs> utterly just like, <laughs> I don't want to think about that. But I like the fact that lots of people are interested in the subject. If that makes sense. It does make sense. A bit backwards, but anyway. But I think it can be really tantalizing to go viral and then it can it can make you think that something else is going on and it can feed the ego. I mean, I'm sure that's there too. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I, it, it just, it felt like a validation. It's like, I love this thing, right? I really love talking about voice because it really helped me so much. I just think mm. everybody, I don't know why everybody doesn't know this stuff. So I'm sure it does validate the dark side of my ego at some level, but actually it's just really, really nice mm. to talk about stuff that I think helps people in a world that is full of, what can I say? In the world that's full of bullshit, you know, a lot of the time. Yep. There's a lot of nonsense out <laughs> yeah. there. There's a lot of nonsense out there, but you are not a nonsense. Okay, I'm going to. So tell me about um, another risk. And you didn't you didn't submit this answer beforehand, but we talked about it before we started recording. And it would be so remiss of me not to try to unpick this with you. So you talked about drama school mm -hmm. <laughs> and the risk of that, but also in relation to criticism. Oh man, yeah. So, all right. So, where do we start with <laughs> Deep this? Deep breath. Yes, there was, wasn't there? This is getting closer to therapy. <laughs> so, I left university and I have always been good with words, right? I've just, that was just my thing growing up. And I, I got to drama school with quite a lot of ego, probably. And yeah, too confident. I never had really had any deep knocks. Quite a privileged childhood. Been to a good university, thought I was a bit all that. And got to drama school and very quickly realized that I didn't know anything and that I wasn't any good. And that the more, the harder I tried to be good, the worse it got. Oh. I remember my teacher, the guy who ran the drama school, said, you've got no process. And I said, I don't know what you mean by process. And he said, the process by which you get better. <laughs> oh, <laughs> cutting but I really didn't because I was trying to do it through my head I was trying to think my way to be better and that's not how it's not how acting works not really how speaking works either mm. and it was such a oh my god I mean I they were it was a brutal drama school and he was I, I clung on by my fingernails I'm surprised I didn't get kicked out actually and and it was one of those situations where you just keep gripping on because I wanted to finish, but it was incredibly tough. And I came out of it thinking, I'm not good at this. And then found my way to drama teaching and then found my way to voice coaching. And in doing a training as a voice coach, I realized that actually I wasn't bad. I wasn't, I was just in, I was being taught by the wrong people. Interesting. Powerful reflection. 
when you were told you don't have a process and that process is of how to get better, was there any truth in that? And the reason I ask is because I think you and I, similar age, growing up in the sort of 80s and 90s where all of our, if you think about a lot of films, it was about somebody who was naturally good at something who just needed a chance and then they were going to be amazing forever. And so I think one absorbs that messaging of, oh, the thing I think I'm good at, because it doesn't mean you are, the thing I think I'm good at, if, some, if the right person sees it, fame and fortune, they're going to be, they're going to be right there. And apart from the 80s movie montages, which are what, 60 to 90 seconds, the element of work is really absent from that kind of storytelling. And I do think that filters into us. So did you, did you feel that I'm naturally quite good at this and that will be enough? And did you know about, did you think that you would have to work at it? It's funny, I remember getting there and looking at the board and it said voice, movement, acting, voice, you know, dialect. I was like, woo. <laughs> so I do think, I do think, I I thought you'd, you know, I had this vision that you would get there and exactly there would probably be a montage scene in Leg Warmers <laughs> and then and then I would be discovered and that would be it. Yeah. And and of course the the process lesson, he was spot on, right? He really was. And it gave me a sense of the deep value of daily discipline or atomic habits or whatever you want to call it. And I got the discipline like 10 years later. And I was like, oh, I see what they're talking about here. Because it's the doing of the five minutes a day mm. that changes you through time. And I think if I had that lesson at, at that age, I probably would have worked as an actor for a bit. I'm quite glad I didn't for lots of reasons. But I, it was it was honest feedback and that criticism was right. It was just I just wasn't in a place to hear it, I think. Did it feel defeating at the time? Like, how did you process it? Did it feel like someone's just being unkind or they don't like me or they're picking on me? Yeah. How long before you were actually able to think of that and think, actually? He was right. Mm. So it was unkind. And the, the kind of modus operandi of that drum school was kind of brutal. Mm. And so I just, it's its almost like parenting, isn't it? It's its like the it, he was kind of the, the critical parent. And so I just rejected, I just rejected it. And then as I got a bit more mature, as I got a bit older, I think I could see that he was coming from a, a cruel place, but it doesn't mean that what he was saying was wrong. Mm. So I think it's funny, for the first book, I interviewed A-list actors and Minnie Driver was one of them. And she said, absolutely spot on advice and I could have done with this advice when someone criticizes you extract what you need from the criticism and just sense check that that's coming from the right place or it feels right for you and then let the rest of it go mm -hmm. and I think that's what I've been able to do you know a long time away from that experience is go yeah he was right and now I know how to do that oh that's I mean it's great advice but it, it can be hard to do yeah to, to sort of put it into the beakers in the chemistry lab and boil off the nastiness and just take away the the criticism crystals that can be useful. It's hard, isn't it? And I think criticism now is much harder because it's so visible to others. Like back in the day, there was no Instagram. Mm. We didn't even have phones really, I don't think. So it was, the criticism would be in a rehearsal room and you might carry it with you, but it wasn't something that everybody could see. Mm. I think now the trouble with criticism, it's so visible. Mm. and people can pile on. So I think that advice about take what you need from it and and then kind of park it, is, it was easier to do then, I think. Mm. Now it's a bit harder. You said you were glad that you didn't work as an actor, but 
you also said that you might have done. And when you think about what that might have looked like, what does it look like? I mean, I just think that, yeah, maybe I would have been a good actor, but I, my instinct is there were, firstly, there were lots of middle-class girls, right? <laughs> With nice accents and fair skin. And even if you are blooming Kate Winslet, the chances of you getting lots of work are pretty limited. So it would have been fun to be Kate Winslet. But I think there are, you know, how many Kate Winslets in 30 years? Not many. Mm. So that's like saying, it would have been really great to win the lottery back in 1990, <laughs> whatever. And and actually the path I ended up on, which is being a voice coach, is, is really much more me. Mm. And it's mine, right? As an actress, it's never yours. Unless you direct, unless you produce. Interesting. It's to, still to this day, it's the thing that I wish... I could do and had done because it looks so great. But it's the thing as I get older, I'm realizing you would be terrible. You wouldn't know where to begin when you actually, I find it fascinating listening to actors talk about their process. I'm like, yeah, no, I would never have made that decision. <laughs> it's, it's hard. I mean, and the acting bit is only a tiny part of that business, isn't it now? Mm. You know, I, I just, I hats off to the ones who do it well. And you and I, I don't think, as far as I know, you're not, and I definitely am not. We're not Nepo babies. I'm not. So if I'd been a lawyer, I would. <laughs> if I'd turned into a lawyer, then maybe a Nepo baby, but not, not, would have been so bad. <laughs> um, okay, let's talk about regrets. And I guess um, you said that you don't regret anything. And hmm. I want to unpick that because... <laughs> I can tell just just by the answer of I don't well you actually said je ne regrette rien forgive Pretentious. my moi <laughs> <laughs> forgive my French accent but in reading that I thought well there's a much bigger story there there's a reason why you've come to that and I would I would gamble that that is something that you have come to perhaps because actually um having regrets can be really heavy yeah and I think you know as a someone in her middle years should we say <laughs> middle years thriving thriving <laughs> and all of that um actually it's that kind of that the warp and weft of the stuff that's really horrible and the stuff you regret and the stuff you dwell on actually that's what makes you an interesting person mm. and the stuff you've done wrong makes you tolerant of other people getting stuff wrong and the stuff you have been embarrassed about makes you tolerant of people being embarrassing you know so i just think of course there's stuff that I would do differently but I do we you know I move forward I'm someone who's really on the front view mm. and I don't spend much time looking in the rearview mirror in fact if you ask me what I did yesterday I'm like what well, let me look at my phone but I think I mean I try to be the same I don't like regrets I think lessons is a better way of saying it. it's like yeah I won't do that again because I regret my behavior or I regret what happened but there are still absolutely times where I'll be quietly minding my own business and memory will flash up into my mind I've got a very I didn't know this until recently you know that your mind's eye so if I say to you picture an apple in your head can you see an apple yeah so some people cannot oh. so um uh, what's the author's name uh, fellow podcast, I've forgotten his name, Richard Herring, I think. Oh, yeah. In his book, he talks about the fact that he has a blind mind's eye. So he can't, see, if you say to him, picture an apple, he cannot see it. 
And that's one of the most, the things that's made me, as I'm reading something, I was already sitting down. Had I been standing, I would have had to have had a sit down because it didn't occur to me that someone else's perspective would be different. But in terms of memories, I can just be sitting, minding my own business and a very vivid picture of something I regret will smack me in my mind's eye and I will and I will have a physical reaction to it of or uncomfortable or I'll say out loud oh there will be a very physical reaction to this thing but I don't like to regret it I like to think of it as a lesson or a thing that I'm going to choose to learn from and never repeat would you say that's more yeah I think that's I mean yeah I certainly there are certain I have the Mine's eye thing. And there is almost photos in the photo album that might be like, oh, no. (laughs) But they're part of that kind of, it's what makes you human, I think. The bad stuff as much as, if it was all good stuff, Mm. we'd be so bland. Mm. The bad stuff is is what makes, uh, it's why I like older older people. <laughs> you know, if you talk to the 80-year-old, they've got so many stories and the stories that you want to talk about are not always the good ones, right? Then mm. it's the it's this what makes good drama is the challenge, the struggle. It is. So, do you speak to a lot of people who are slightly do you find that that's a good resource for you? Do you find that quite a grounding thing? Because I think it's something that culturally we don't do very much anymore, particularly in Western culture maybe, where we listen to our elders. It's almost like we park them off to the side and be like, yeah, okay, we'll come and visit. But do you think that's actually a really good resource for the younger generations to actually hear those stories? I think just listening to each other generally. I mean, I think there's a lot of the youngsters who have good lessons as well. But I certainly, I like the perspective, you know, because often... Our friends are going through, you know, such kind of personal stuff. When you talk to people who have a bigger perspective of the world, more distance, maybe they've stopped working. Mm. They're not. They're not seeing the same problems as you are. I think the more I talk to people who are different to me, the more I learn. And and I think we get a bit stuck sometimes in our friendships and our, you know, we don't see the big picture. It's so interesting you say that because I was chatting to someone the other day saying that it you can have your echo chamber, right? So the algorithms are really, really onto what you're doing and what you might like. So that's what they serve you. So sometimes, particularly with podcasting, if I'm feeling a bit uneasy, I will go to the podcast apps and I will search for someone maybe I don't like and listen to what they have to say and try and hear them out because I think it's really perspective shifting. It opens everything up again, doesn't it? Mm. Rather than just looking at what you like, it's like and and in my job I meet people who are really vastly different to me. Like every day I'm meeting people, and and almost the person who is challenging or difficult or a bit rude, in a way that's the that's the person you can learn from because it's not closing your mind and going. Oh. <laughs> it's going okay. That's interesting. Where are they coming from? How fascinating. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
What's the variety of people that come to you to get help? Because a lot of people assume it's just actors or thesps or... It's actors, it's celebs in various forms, and then it's people leading businesses. And those, I mean, those businesses can be really varied. So I, I, it's anybody who's a little bit in the public eye mm. for various, you know, for different reasons, whether that public eye is because they're going on Bloomberg or because they've recorded a podcast or they're going on Lorraine, you know, <laughs> those those kinds of things. <laughs> Can you teach charm via how someone uses their voice? I think charm is innate, isn't it? Mm. I think charm is something that, comes out of your just your presence your essence but I think what I teach people is how to be at ease I once interviewed Helen Lederer who Mm. was great and she said it's important to like your own energy and charm for me it's not arrogance that's different it's people who like their own energy who are kind of comfortable in their own energy can you learn to do that? I think you probably can a bit. Mm. You can settle into yourself. I think you have to really learn that. But a lot of it's innate, isn't it? You know that. Well, because when I think about someone who, to be on the world stage and just an incredible example of how to behave and how to speak, I do think of Obama. I don't know if you yeah, agree. Yeah, still. Yeah. yeah. It's just incredible. Because I think the way that someone like that with such a huge platform behaves filters out into conversations in supermarkets and at work in offices and all that sort of stuff. And I I do, I wish it could be learned because I think it should almost be like a prerequisite if you're standing up speaking on behalf of a government or a country or whatever. It's not much in this country at the moment, is there? I do work with politicians as well. Do you? Yeah. <laughs> I was about to say which ones, but no, I won't ask no, you. No, no, <laughs> I won't. But interestingly, funnily you should say that because it felt maybe we can go here, maybe we can't. You can divert me if you like. But one of the things that I said repeatedly during the pandemic, when we were all locked down, when we were all gripped to our TV, is there's not a single person who is making me feel confident in what they are saying, mm. apart from maybe some of the, a couple of the scientists who were delivering it in such a way that I expected from a scientist that I was like, okay, I believe you. But no reassurance, n- nothing. Everything made me go, oh, really? You sure? Which I think is what led to so many people questioning and, and creating even more sort of panic and disarray. Yeah, I agree. And and, I, and it's funny, with the political clients and, and kind of clients in corporates, I talk a lot about being the pilot of the plane, mm. just get, getting on the flight and the pilot's voice saying, I've got this, I've got you, in their tone, right? And I think people are so scattered and like everything that's coming out about that government in the pandemic shows that the thinking was scattered. Mm. One of the actors I interviewed in that first book was um, Anna Massey, who sadly died. And she talked about Obama and she said she was struck at the time by how physically fit he was in his campaign. Mm. And it's back to discipline, right? It's back to the five minutes a day. I know they go running some of them. But they don't look physically disciplined. Mm. And I think that that is actually more important than we realize. And Obama is a good, Michelle Obama is a good example of that. People who are in their bodies, focused, disciplined, have a good set of habits. 
it almost, I mean, you, you can go too far with this, right? But I think there is an aspect of that that it allows them to show up and do their job properly. It's interesting because there's a former uh, White House stenographer, I think that's the right description, Beck, who came on this podcast a few years ago. She's an avid runner, avid, avid runner. And when she was working in Obama's administration, she would travel with him and they would always be next to each other on the treadmills. And I was like, what do you do when Obama's... <laughs> do you go, like, do you change your speed accordingly? Just run a little bit slower than the president? Like, well, how do you... That's so what funny. do you do? Yeah. She's like, no, no, you just just run at your pace. I'm like, oh. to me, not adjusting your behavior when Obama's on the next treadmill, hats off to you. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> really cool. Okay. So charm is innate. That's good to know. Kind of wish it wasn't. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you could discuss, couldn't you? Mm. I mean, kids, ha all kids have charm, right? So maybe charm is innate. <laughs> I mean, Okay, <laughs> but let that two-year-old baby thing. Oh, there's yeah, a charm, isn't yeah. there? And and so it. I, right. Do you want a, a long word? Yeah. My favourite word right now is entelechy. 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 And it it, it's, it sounds really flash, but what it means is it's like the acorn. Every acorn contains the oak. Uh huh. And I think everybody has charm, but we block it. We shut. We shut down. We have internal dialogue. Our bodies get tense. Someone said something mean. I mean, I definitely lost any vestige of charm that I had after drama school because I was so tense and I was so anxious and it, and I felt so squashed. But it, it kind of, it can unfurl again, I think. I don't know. Do you feel unfurled now? <laughs> I feel like me and I don't really care. You know, it's just, I think that, that sense of this is me. Some people are going to like me. Some people are not going to like me. That's okay. Mm. That was definitely the thing that I, and I know I've already said it, but the thing that I came away with from our last conversation was the voice is a really small part of it. It's about, it's about inhabiting your own space unapologetically. And then usually from what, what comes out of your mouth will be authentic. And that's, that's half of it, isn't it? Just like yeah. not living any kind of lie. It's, oh, and, and it, and I learned a lot in, that drama school experience about, you see, I think the blocker to that is we try too hard. Mm. The thing, the thing that made that experience not work was that I was really trying too hard to impress people and to be that person in the leg warmers <laughs> in the eighties movies. I knew you were going to say leg warmers. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want me in leg warmers. That's what I'm going to say. But it, it, the, in the trying, you lose the charm. Mm. And that's what I would say to that girl is stop freaking trying so hard and instead just listen to what they're saying and pay attention and be an idiot. Because mm. in being an idiot and messing up, you're going to do so much better. And actually a friend of mine's just done clown school. Oh my God, so scary. And she talks about the flop. And the flop is when the clown goes wrong on stage the clown is taught to embrace the flop, like to use the mistake to really kind of make the whole thing about the mistake because it's accepting it. Mm. And and I think that's what I didn't know how to do was just to use the flop. Michael Caine calls it using the difficulty. But he would, it. wouldn't he? He would, darling. <laughs> he would, darling. <laughs> um, Isla Fisher did clown school. 
And I always remember that when she did, um, was it The Girl in the Green Scarf or whatever that film was, the shopping she's one. She's funny, yeah. She, she's got incredible physical comedy, but also so does Jennifer Lopez. I will oh. say, Jennifer Lopez is a really good physical comic actress and I will not take that back. I'm going to go back to her. Because <laughs> Sasha Baron Cohen also did Clown School, didn't he? So there's a, there's a theme there. Oh. We all need to do Clown School. Yes. This is what my friend says, but honestly, it sounds like the most terrifying thing in the whole world. Because do you just, is it because, is it terrifying because you have to surrender to looking stupid? And they give you a character. So he, this Philippe Gaulier, who I think Baron Cohen and Isla Fisher probably trained with, not sure, check, fact check. <laughs> um, he he sees something in each individual and he says, you are going to play X character for two weeks. So he names who you're going to be and then you have to embody that. I mean, that is hard. Yeah. That is hard. I'm not sure if I have that. No, that does sound a lot. Okay, so... Let's switch gears a little bit. Let's talk about weaknesses. Mm -hmm. You've talked about the criticism you had at drama school. So I, I'm curious, how connected and realistic are you with yourself about your weaknesses? Are you honest about them? I think I know what I don't do well and I know what I do do well. But... I think I probably don't delve down into why I don't do well what I don't do well, if that makes sense. And I'm a bit lazy about the stuff that I don't do well. Mm. Partly because I'm moving so fast towards the future that I can't be bothered with that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's throwing me down. <laughs> so it's it's kind of over-indexing on the stuff I do well. Is also, I'm also a working mum, so there's not much time. Mm. But I'm, I definitely feel like I could investigate a bit more the stuff I don't do so well I think there's something that happens in your 40s so for me it was press-ups <laughs> and it sounds so stupid and banal but it was that thing of hitting 44 and never being able to do a press-up and the time marches on and you think am I never going to be able to do a press-up this is almost like a choice I'm going to make now. That thing, yeah. And so I was like, no, I'm going to be able to do a press-up. But it's like, do you? what can you linger on? Because you could spend your entire day going, well, I want to do that, I want to do that, I want to do the other. But it's choosing. Driving in London. Oh, no. <laughs> yes, that Get was stuffed. my press-ups. That was my press-ups. I got to that point, I was like, okay, if I don't drive in London now, I am just never going to, I don't want to be the person who never drives in London. So I've been having London driving lessons. Amazing. And oh my God. <laughs> Is it horrible? It's, I love the end of the driving lesson. <laughs> The beginning is a bit stressful, but it's a good feeling to do the press-ups, to do the London driving mm -hmm. and to push through those kind of barriers that we create in our heads. So and more, you know, driving lessons type things. Let me ask you this. What's scariest about driving in London? Is it the roads or is it the people behind the wheels of the other cars on the road? It's the people behind the wheels <laughs> who are just, I don't know, they're just kamikaze <laughs> and it's the cyclists oh, i'm yeah. terrified of hurting yeah. another human and they come at you really fast <laughs> but you're only going 20 miles an hour aren't you so it's not that hard but it yeah i, I it's the kamikaze and it's funny because he keeps saying to me commit be bolder just go that's exactly what i say to speakers 
Interesting. Hard advice to take in a car in London. Hard advice to take. (laughs) I think London is a terrifying place to drive because the majority of people driving in London know it very, 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 very well. And if you are a newbie, you're going to quickly get found out and have have you. (laughs) They are going to (laughs) spot you a mile off and they are going to sit on their horns behind you. Or just cut in. And his advice to me always is make faster decisions and see ahead, you know, see four junctions ahead. Mm. And it's just like speaking. You know, when you speak, you have to be really intentional. You have to really pay attention. And then you have to make decisions and commit to them. But I'm not so good at it on the A3. Love <laughs> <laughs> about the A3. Um, you said when I asked you specifically about a weakness that you're aware of and perhaps try to work on, and that's the spinning out of control. Maybe your head gets a little busy. And I thought, oh, that's interesting because you don't have any regrets. So what does a busy mind look like for you? Oh, God, I mean, that's a, that, this is, this is, my life's right. Okay, it sounds a bit pretentious, but my whole life, my whole life thing has been about not being the person who spins out. Because all the decisions I've made that were wrong come from that spinny outy. Oh, mm. that's shiny, you know that place. Mm. Hanging out with the wrong people, you know, thinking I wanted to be a shiny, exciting actress, just like Kate Winslet. You know, mm. all of that stuff came from a place of thought and wanting to look good and wanting to impress. And maybe wanting to be like the people that I thought I should be like. Mm-hmm. And all the good decisions have come from a place of this feels right. Gut. Kind of planted, easy, not trying to fit into anybody. And I I just, you know, that's the regrets is that I did too much of the shiny. Oh, that's going to make me look good. And it's all, you know, rubbish mm. in the end. How do you said that? The thing that helps you with the spinning out when your head does get busy is movement. How does that, is that part of your five minutes a day, the daily habit? Oh, massively. I I mean, I. it's funny, I, I wasn't any good at movement at drama school. And I've never been a sporty kid. How right? do you judge somebody being good at movement? Because oh, well, headstands and that. You know? Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> And you know we would have the you'd have the dance class. I like I would never have been in the front row of you know chorus line, or whatever. <laughs> but so I I kind of didn't think of myself as a good mover. But I've always loved movement, and when I do Pilates or yoga or just go for a blum and walk, being in my body is one of the nicest things of all. So I'm a little bit you know it is something I try and do daily. Mm. And there's a great studio called Heba, actually, in South London, which I've been going to a lot. And it's really, really great. You just move in your own time and you come out and you feel amazing. Oh. Love Heba. It's like a little bit of interpretive dancing situation. It's just a machine. It's like a reformer, but it's oh. more fun. <laughs> <laughs> five rhythms. Don't get me on five. At, at some point, I would like to do five rhythms. What's it's, five rhythms? Oh, my God. It's crazy lady dancing. But men can join too. And they put they put five rhythms. Like There are five styles of music and you can play any music within that style as like chaos which is basically raving and uh, you dance through it and it's incredibly therapeutic but i haven't done that that's one regret oh well let's put that right before the end of the year (laughs) (laughs) not since drama school um okay so the daily movement okay come back to obama again yeah that's it that's it um 
What does spinning out look and feel like to you? And the reason I'm asking about that specifically, it's not to take you to a dark place, but because I can relate to that, which means that I'm sure that many people listening can relate to this idea of spinning out and maybe feeling that their thoughts aren't as clear or their decision making isn't as on point as it should be. What does it, how do you know that you're spinning out? There's a voice in my head, which is incredibly critical and shrill and unkind and is always finding fault with everything. And that voice can easily run the show. If I'm a bit tired, if I haven't eaten properly, if I've had too much coffee, if a few things have gone wrong in the day, if I've had too many Zoom calls, then do it. <laughs> yeah, it just I just start to spin. Mm-hmm. And I'm not in contact with the world anymore. It's just a kind of weird Caroline psychodrama in which I'm terrible. I'm a terrible person. And it's just, I catch it sometimes. I just have to stop and go, just what? Is it too much external stimulation? Maybe. And I, and I also think in my work life, I'm talking to lots of different people all the time mm-hmm. and absorbing, you know, the politician there and this person who's got a podcast and they're going on Lorraine and then that person who's got to do an annual results presentation. And it's lots of information all the time. And I think sometimes it makes you a bit, yeah, spinny. Do you find this? You speak to a lot of people all the time, whether it's on Zoom or face to face. I sometimes get to the end of a week, especially if I've been podcasting a lot and I'll think, oh, I had that conversation with... And I take 20 minutes to place which conversation it was and who it was with because it's because there's been an overload and I'm really enjoying all of the information. I've enjoyed every conversation, but there's a sort of a a backlog or a traffic jam in trying to actually process it and then share it. So, so much so. And as an introvert, because I, are you, you're probably more ex, ex, or you're, you're intro. I'm, well, okay. I think I'm intro. Or I'm one of the, there's that saying, isn't there? Ambie. You're a, I'm an ambi. Um, what is it? An ex, an introvert um, pretending to be an extra. What's the, yeah, I, I, out, I outwardly I present as an extrovert, yeah. but I'm actually an introvert. But there's an ambivert, which is somewhere in between, I think. Yeah, more research is needed, I think, on this for me. But I, 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 I as an introvert-ish, Whatever, however you call it, introverted, <laughs> introvert adjacent. Yeah. I definitely, I, I get to the end of the week just like that, and I'm just like, I need to go and hide away for a bit and just remember who I am, because mm. it, it becomes incredibly stimulated and extrovert, and just sometimes just having two weeks just to be quiet is incredibly therapeutic. I used to think that time spent alone was wasted time. And so I would always try and put myself in situations and it's only, honestly, I swear in my forties, like late thirties, forties, that I've realized how important a day where I don't speak to anybody is. So lovely. Yeah. So lovely. Just to allow my brain to compute the data (laughs) and sort of bring me back down to baseline. My granny used to call it what you're letting your soul catch up with your body. Which is really nice. I love that. She was quite a spiritual soul, my granny. It does feel like sometimes you've you've had a week and your soul's kind of left back there somewhere and you're like, your body's going. Mm. Okay, well, that brings us nicely into future facing. I asked you what one of your strengths is and you said that you're future focused. You're always looking ahead, which would feed into the fact that you're 
not somebody who really lingers on your regrets, doesn't really think too much about what's happened, just focus on what's going forward. Why is it a strength? Oh, I mean, is it a strength? I don't even know if it is. I I power through. I'm always like, what's the next shiny thing? The next thing I want to create. I like making stuff. I like writing books. Like I've made a course in lockdown and I'm going to make another one. And it's just, I think I like artifacts mm. like making stuff like you make a podcast you know it's kind of fun to have those things out there in the world and so I'm always looking at what can I make next and I, it, I don't know where it comes from is it a physical um trinkets the wrong word but it's just like a physical thing to show what you did with that time yeah yes it's a tangible Deeply. yeah it's like <laughs> I am still alive <laughs> I have made this thing. And if it helps people, that's nice. But yeah. I think there is, a, it's like, I am quite, I am quite death focused. What? I do think about dying quite a lot. So I, I do, I used to read, we did Anglo-Saxon at university and they had this whole thing about being remembered after death. There's some word, I think it might be loaf, but I can't remember. It might be LOF anyway. I'm not making anything that will be particularly remembered, but I think there is something about you're going to die, so make some stuff. That's a bit dark, isn't it? Well, I've always, I, this is so weird that it's come up like the second time in as many episodes or, or weeks, but um, you, have you been, did you go to the Tutankhamun exhibition when it was in oh, London? Oh, no, I wish I had. That's a regret. It was, it was really, it was magnificent. It was really interesting, but I didn't know. So he was essentially... Um, the other pharaohs tried to erase him. I'm not doing this. There are going to be historians going, off oh, for the love of Mike, <laughs> this, this bitch telling this story. But essentially they tried to eradicate. He was a very young pharaoh. Tutankhamun was this young pharaoh. They tried to eradicate him. And I think his tomb was where it was in order to sort of like off the beaten track. Oh, guy, yeah. And because they was like, no, no, he never existed. It was all about us. It was all about us. And the the sort of belief in Egypt was that a man only truly dies, man only truly dies when the last person on earth speaks their name. So actually, oh. Tutankhamun is the most immortal and longest living. So their intentions were were well and truly scuppered. That's amazing. So I need to make some gold stuff now. You just, yeah. You just, <laughs> That's what you're saying. <laughs> well, well, how big's your garden? <laughs> you just need to bury some stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and so leave some clues and I don't know. Yeah. And you can like... More pyramids. Well, not pyramids, more tombs. Pyramids. Yeah. Oh, don't even get me started on the pyramids. How did they get there? Let's not, let's not pull at that thread. I could easily go there, but I won't. Okay, we'll do that off. We'll do that off, Dave. <laughs> um, I think it's always really telling to ask a guest how they are at computing their mistakes and admitting when they were wrong how good are you at that hmm i mean last night very grumpy with my poor 12 year old um so how quickly there's the moment of saying the thing right mm -hmm. isn't there and noticing the emotion and then there's a cool down point <laughs> and then there's a i behave like an asshole <laughs> um i think i'm better at it now than I used to be mm. and I think I am what I've learned to do is stop and self-regulate it's that kind of just calm, calm down dear mm -hmm. into yourself it's better as long as it's not a man saying it to you it's all right if you're saying it to yourself it's fine mm -hmm. um and in that calm place I think you can go was that the right response or 
Oh, actually, no, you're just being really grumpy. It's interesting. Um, I've had a couple of conversations today and both of the mothers have, have referenced parenting. <laughs> Tell me about a time when you were wrong. I think it seems like... It's hard. Yeah. It's hard and... and you have such I mean I just think and also teenage daughter you have it's so important that you I I, I always feel like it's all right to lose your temper it's all right to be a bit grumpy as long as afterwards you can say I'm really sorry mm. and the conversation we had last night was a, the Brené Brown one where she talks about and I love this she and her husband have this thing where they talk about I'm at 10% today I'm at 30% and I said to her I was at 30% and sometimes if you're at 30%, you just need to say, Mum, I've had a really bad day at school. I'm at 30%, just give me half an hour. Mm. And I think if we are able to kind of name that to others, then it doesn't become a kind of, I'm feeling horrible, so now you're feeling horrible too. Mm. And that's that's not how, life is not fun, is it like that? And I grew up a little bit in a household where, which I probably won't talk about very much, but where that consciousness wasn't fully formed, mm. which is partly what I do, that's why I do what I do really because you see the benefits for you and for others when they learn it I guess self-regulation is such a massive and we're also dysregulated by these phones mm -hmm. right we're also you know if I spend a little bit of time on whatsapp or instagram I can feel how quickly I get spun out and so we have to learn to regulate what are you looking at though because if you're looking at you know videos of Pedro Pascal That'll chill you out. Yes, yeah, it, it is true. <laughs> There's some things that will take you to a calmer place. That's my gift to you. Yeah. <laughs> I will take that. Work the algorithm and make yeah. that come up because trust me, <laughs> life feels a lot better when... I'm on it. <laughs> um, when I asked you specifically about a time when you were wrong, you've alluded to it already in this conversation, but I want to unpick it. And the reason I do is because... I am guilty of exactly the same thing. And I can 100% sit in front of you and say, I have done this too. And I know I was very wrong. And it's being attracted to shiny, glossy, successful, wealthy, glamorous, famous people and thinking, if I'm next to you, then I'll be glossy, shiny, famous, rich, and everything will happen the way I want it to. And actually, you can spend a long time doing that before you realize <laughs> that's not going to be the outcome oh my god I mean this so the, back to the 80s and all the magazines so mm. I grew up in a household with lots of glossy magazines then I got to university and there were all these people who were like the people in the glossy magazines and there were also the people around me who were really just good friends mm. and I was what 18, 19 And I didn't value the people who were good friends and had a good heart and were kind and we were doing fun things together. And I went off with all the kind of glossy, pretty people who'd been in the magazines. And surprise, surprise, it was quite an empty experience. And I, I that's my big regret is that I didn't kind of honor and value the people with the heart. But it's a mistake that I only made then, mm -hmm. actually. And... Uh, you know, later on in my 20s, I think I started, and actually because drama school was so brutal, I think the friendships we all made, I mean, I'm, I married a man from drama school, right? I think those friendships became much more honest and down to earth. But certainly in my late teens and early 20s, I was an idiot. <laughs> I, I was a proper idiot. If I met me now, I'd be like, oh dear, just grow up. But you only knew what you knew. Yeah. 
was working with the information I had. Exactly. Which was from Glossy Magazine. Which was from Glossy. So, I mean, that's really the problem, isn't it? <laughs> Should have read more books and not been such an asshole. <laughs> well, that not that a tagline? <laughs> Caroline Goyd, a face of Waterstones. <laughs> Should have read more books. <laughs> Probably can't say the asshole in the tagline, but... Oh, I'm sure, you know, everything's moved on in that time. Um, right, I was going to ask you something then about Glossy People. Um... Oh, I know. <laughs> Working with the people that you work with, high profile people, successful people. I've been around those sorts of people for my job and they are so they can be so intoxicating. We've talked about charm being innate, but you've got a few things, talent, looks, money, fame, whatever. Put those all together and they are like a shiny star that you can't look away from. Mm. So Given that experience in your teens and 20s, are you quite good at not not letting the shininess of those really significantly important, powerful people um, just sort of like pull you in? The fairy dust. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's fairy dust. The, the Writing the star qualities was a really, really good antidote to that, actually, because <laughs> I went in. I mean, it's a fairy dust title. Mm. It was published because it was fairy dust. And I was a bit breathless in maybe not the interviews, but certainly in the writing of it. But I really did learn, you know, it was Kate Windsor, it was Helen Mirren, it was Sarah Jessica Parker, all of those people. And collectively they were, you know, blindingly fairy dust. But as individuals, I mean, it's, a, it's such a cliche, this, they were just humans. Mm. They were all nervous. They were all paranoid. Acting sounded like quite a tough business. They'd all had tough times, you know. So I think that was a really grounding experience because the aggregate of all those interviews was, this is a tough job and they're just people trying to get through it. But of course, the self, the acting self that gets the acting work, you know, when you see the Eddie Redmaynes or the Kate Blanchett's or whoever's in their professional role, they are incredibly glamorous. Mm. But I think the reality of the human is just human just normal but i mean yes it was it was a quite a kind of good i've never been impressed by famous people after that if that makes sense they're still intoxicating but mm. i'm they're just people you don't think they're better they're very good at what they do you know they're just people who are very very good at what they do mm. and and there's a word in sales which is parity which is just would those people just show up as an equal Respect what they do, you know, look up to them for the brilliance that they have, but then just be another human. Because mm. it's it's horrible to have someone be with you and look up to you and kind of hero worship you. So I think you're not doing those people any kind of service when you hero worship them. I think that's something that as an interviewer, for especially a young interviewer when I first started out and suddenly became face to face with people who are on the TV and in films, it's really hard not to hero worship. It's really hard not to go, oh, but you're amazing. And then you feel like you're being somehow um, dismissive of everything they've done if you just are like, all right. <laughs> it's, it's quite a fun. It's a hard balance. Same, I think being around fame is really, um, it's odd. Mm, it is. Well, what is it? The mask that eat, dissolve, eats the face? Who said that? There was some writer whose name I can't remember, but he said that fame is the mask that eats your face. And I think that's right. And I, yeah, I I really learned about just show up, be interested, be respectful, and then that's enough. And I'm also Northern. 
(laughs) (laughs) And probably, you know, I could be more, oh, you're so amazing. But I, I mean, as a coach, I'm all about being direct, you know, so Mm. that I think as a coach, if you're blowing smoke up people's asses, you're not really coaching, are you? If someone doesn't have a process for how to get better and you observe that, how do you communicate that to them, given that the way it was communicated to you was so um, tactless? Oh, it was horrible. My big rule in life is celebrate, then refine. Celebrate, you know, someone's courage in getting there, the hard work they put in, what they have been doing well, if it's empathy that they're showing, the kindness they're showing, and then say, then I say to people, and what do you want to work on? And then I let them give themselves the feedback and then I bridge into where I want to go. But it, it's, I, I never want to knock someone down because mm. I think when you're knocked, it's really, really hard to rebuild. It takes time. And people in the public eye, they don't have time. Mm. You know, if you're coaching someone who's got to go and, you know, do a political hustings or needs to go out and make a big speech, then they don't have time to rebuild. And another speechwriter did say to me, you're very gentle and supportive with clients. And and it is a big part of my ethos because I know how hard it is when someone knocks you down. That doesn't work for some people. Some people do need to be knocked down. You know, I can think of certain politicians who probably actually do. (laughs) They probably could have done with someone to really say, actually, that's not right. Mm. And you're not doing this right. Mm. I'm not that coach and I'm not right for those people actually. I think what's interesting is anyone listening to this could be thinking, well, I'm not a voice coach, but I'm sure there are lots of people listening who are managers or who have a team or who have people who report into them who can think, who will have listened to this and thought perhaps the way that I, because coaching is managing, right? Oh yeah. And so I think there's a lot to be taken away from this in terms of how if you're managing someone or some, or you have a position, position where you can guide, there's a way to do it. Where- so much. I had a client yesterday and he said, oh, my team are really doing this badly and I'm, I'm not happy with it. And so we just talked about, well, what questions could you ask? And it's that. If you're not happy, you don't have to say that's rubbish, but say, you know, how can I support you? What could be better around this? What do you need from me? Mm. And those questions are what unlock people. It's really compassionate as well. Yeah. And I think we need to be, life's quite hard. People are quite anxious out there at the moment, aren't they? Mm. And I think we need to be a little bit kinder. We do. Because it's hard. We do indeed. I feel kinder and better and like this wasn't hard. So thank you for coming back. <laughs> I am so honoured to be back. Thank you for having me. Always so fun a to pleasure. chat. Pleasure. Such a pleasure. We'll get we'll get into risk next time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, then make sure you're subscribed so you never miss a show. And why not tell a friend about the podcast? If you want to watch what happens behind the scenes, then head over to my Instagram where I'm at Emma Guns. And if you want to get in touch with me and share any risks, obstacles, challenges, or curveballs that you've faced and overcome, then tell me on thebeautypodcast at gmail.com. And it may feature in one of the midweek shows. Thank you so much for tuning in. I will see you on the next one.